0: to Relative Digressions. Uh, I am Renna. I'm Felicia. And this is episode 7, where we are discussing the serial The Happiness Patrol. So, Flick, do you want to kick us off? What, what, how, what's this episode about? How does it start?
1: So, the 7th Doctor, travelling with Ace, um, who's still quite new at this point, come to a human colony world called Terra Alpha, because the Doctor has heard that there is untoward goings-on, and he's decided he's going to deal with it. So the planetary governor, essentially, Helen A., who may or may not bear a resemblance to certain people in power uh, at the time that the story went out, she has been disappearing people off the streets, essentially. And she claims later on uh, when she meets the census taker that this is about population control. But it's very transparently obvious that what's really going on is that Helen A., cannot process negative emotions and has to suppress all negative emotion hide it all away and to that end she has increasingly built up this Orwellian society entirely around trying to crush any sadness depression what she calls the killjoys out of the colony but of course this is a self-fulfilling prophecy because as the oppression gets worse and worse, she makes the population ever more demoralised.
0: Yeah, and I think just to be clear, the, the use of the adjective Orwellian here is absolutely appropriate. Now, the way the story is told is kind of funny. I think sometimes not a lot happens. Yeah, it sort of feels like a lot does. It is only three episodes long, so yeah. I mean, a nice length for me. I have to say, I think six six episode serials are quite long for me. So three was a nice length. Um, But basically, the Doctor and Ace land, and they get arrested. The Doctor wants to get arrested because he kind of wants to see what happens to people who get arrested in this system. So they have to basically be appropriately sad, so that the the Happiness Patrol, the, the the eponymous Happiness Patrol, will arrest them. So they're taken to the waiting area, and basically this is a place prisoners are sort of put, but they can leave at any time. But they'll be shot if they do. But they're absolutely free to leave and they should be happy. And there's really a lot of this kind of thing throughout the episode, this kind of weird double think new speak style stuff where it's very clear what's going on, but like everything is being dressed up in this kind of cloying, overbearing happiness uh wrapper that Helena is trying to create.
1: The happiness patrol is in a sense although they are flavoured a bit like a secret police, they are the the public face of the regime. But what people really fear is Helena's executioner, the Candyman. The Candyman is, we should be clear, not an infringement on the rights of Bertie Bassett, but a completely original creation that just happens to be made of licorice all sorts. He is a robotic confectioner murderer who produces sweets that kill people. And he's a bit of a double act with his inventor, Gilbert M who is a sadistic scientist the two of them are exiles from their home world because they killed half the population with a virus and Helen A has given them sanctuary in exchange for them carrying out executions by essentially drowning people in fondant
0: i I have to say one it's quite interesting that uh, having discussed if you could if you had a virus in your hand that would kill a bunch of people in in our last episode, uh, we now meet someone who did have a virus in his hand and killed a lot of people um so uh, I find Candyman and Gilbert M quite interesting. they're very clearly a double act um Gilbert M is quite camp. I mean this entire episode is quite camp, but these two characters in particular, they have a sort of weird codependent relationship that's quite there's just a number of parts in this episode that I felt we'll get onto this later. We're kind of oddly kind of queer coded and I definitely got some of this as Candyman and Gilbert M, which is quite interesting, I thought. Uh, a while Flick was a bit at pains to say he doesn't he is a original creation, he does look quite a lot like Bertie Bassett. And I think it's probably fair to mention at this point that if people have any awareness of this episode, it's the episode where the doctor fights Bertie Bassett. But there's so much more to it than that.
1: So the significance of the Candyman to the plot is that his candy kitchen delivers this lethal confection around the city for executions. And so there is a web of tunnels that spread out from the Candy Kitchen around Terra Alpha, which the Doctor uses to get around. And in the tunnels, he uncovers a native species who, when the humans colonised the planet, stop me if you've heard this one, were forced underground and driven out of their native lands. And they now live in the Candyman's Pipes. Uh, And as a result, they can sneak around the city and they've been observing Ace, who they've taken a real shine to. Ace, at this point, has been captured and forced to audition for the Happiness Patrol, essentially um, conscripted.
0: Yes, so it's an honour to be in the Happiness Patrol and therefore you should audition to be in it. So everything has this kind of wrapper around it still. (laughs) wrapper. Ah, indeed. Um... So the doctor, the doctor has escaped, and actually the doctor looks like we're going to be this there's, this. there's going to be this sting operation on the doctor, but he's he's worked it out. And before the man doing the sting operation, the doctor can signal for the happiness patrol. Um, he's knocked unconscious.
1: So the doctor is saved from the the happiness patrol secret policeman by a man called Earl Sigma, who is a, a travelling psychologist who came to study Terra Alpha, but having got there, he's found that he basically can't leave. Why Why would you leave? Does that mean you're unhappy? We can't have unhappiness. Notably, Earl is played by a black actor, and he has imported the blues to Terra Alpha which, of course, is not condoned because the blues is the, the antithesis of what A stands for.
0: And, and indeed, this gives some quite good diegetic music. So most of the music at first has been like Muzak piped through speakers. And then and throughout, the, throughout the serial, in fact, um, Earl's um, blues playing on the harmonica sort of appears now and then because people keep bumping into Earl. And it's a real kind of musical motif. And a lot of what this episode is trying to say is about kind of the necessity for kind of sadness and bittersweetness. And, and really Earl Earl's music especially represents that. Um, I really love the way this episode uses music.
1: As is fairly obvious at this point the happiness of the Happiness Patrol and the Hell and A and all of the state is a veneer. And it's very clear that, truthfully, nobody is actually happy here.
0: Okay, so I, I can't actually remember what happens next.
1: There There isn't a huge amount of actual plot in the story. There's a bit of capture and escape and recapture with the Doctor and the Candyman, with Ace and the Happiness Patrol. But Ace is sentenced to audition at the forum which is a variety show where the acts invariably end up dead so she's been sentenced to death the doctor and earl meanwhile have discovered what passes for a protest movement but it's diminished to excess not least because helena sends out actual snipers to cover the route of the protest which the Doctor subsequently disables in a in a fantastic moment that we'll get onto later. And the Doctor and Earl galvanise the protest movement and they bring them to the forum. And at the climax of the story, the Happiness Patrol arrive to carry out Ace's execution, but there's a big protest going on and the Doctor has the protesters all laugh and giggle and be happy and jovial And the Happiness Patrol therefore cannot arrest them, cannot shut them down, because then they would be the ones being the Killjoys. And he catches them in this Catch-22 situation, which is the final push that's really needed to expose the fractures in this veneer of happiness. Uh, The members of the Happiness Patrol start infighting. Chaos starts to take hold. In this chaos, Helena takes matters into her own hands. She has this pet Stigerax, which is a sort of puppet-looking, slightly spitting image thing, uh, called Fifi, which she sort of coos over and coddles. She sends it to go and hunt down the Doxer and Earl and co. But Fifi comes to a sticky end, ha-ha, because they lure it into the Candyman's tunnels and Earl plays a note on his harmonica which brings down all of the crystallised sugar and crushes Fifi to death.
0: Yeah, and then at this stage, it's very much uh last days of the regime situation. Helena is finding out that like there's strikes rising across the planet. It's very clear that she needs to do what like dictators traditionally do in this sort of situation and flee.
1: Yeah, it should be mentioned, there is no sort of huge climax here. There isn't a, a great sort of good triumphs over evil. Helena isn't killed or dispatched, she just runs away.
0: And this is this is actually, for me, I think this is the climax of the story. Finally, the Doctor bumps into Helen A, but there's no violent climax. All the revolution is happening off screen. The Doctor basically puts to her but the problem is her, that she is having this problem of emotion and she's forcing on everyone else. And then Helen A is like, I'll I'll just go somewhere else and just run this all again. But as she's about to leave, she spots Fifi lying dead. And she breaks down in tears. And,
1: and Helen A is sort of this one-note Thatcher thing... For almost the whole story, but that one-noteness for almost the whole story works so well when she finally runs into the doctor at the end, and they have this very muted confrontation. And where, then there's
0: a bit with Fifi, like
1: you finally just kind of understand that all of this just comes out of her inability to deal with negative feelings.
0: Which I mean, you know, big mood. Um the episode ends with the TARDIS being repainted blue, it having been re- repainted pink at the end, and there's a nice speech from the Doctor about kind of the necessity of bittersweetness in life and there's a sort of a lovely thing about the value of melancholy that there's just some po- really poetic kind of speeches and stuff about that kind of thing in this episode You can't get away Helena There's a scheduled flight in an hour You can't stop me Doctor! <laughs> oh I know I can't but it's not me you're running away from who is it then? Yourself. That's why
1: you'll never escape.
0: So, shall we, shall we talk about the episode? First of all, let's talk about
1: the Seventh Doctor.
0: Yeah. who Who is a second time seeing the Seventh Doctor, of course, because we saw him in the TV movie.
1: Yes, of course, you've seen the very, very end of his existence. And I think it's interesting that when you see him in the TV movie, there is that kind of... His little moment is a moment where he is enjoying a kind of happy melancholy,
0: it is yes um so that's a nice resonance um i really 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 like him
1: this is interesting um this moment here is kind of a turning point season 25 and season 26 obviously the sylvester mccoy era has already been underway but there is a second era division within the mccoy era and this is kind of the beginning of that that after Mel's gone and Ace joins, it is essentially a new era. Same Doctor, but a new era. So this is almost the start of an era.
0: Yeah, so I really, really, really like the Seventh Doctor. Um, I like Sylvester McCoy as an actor. Um, He has just quite a nice accent, which helps. He's got a nice way of delivering his lines. He has a sort of... You know, an easy charm to him in some ways, but actually, there's a lot more going on. Um, I, I like he he just has a nice look to his face. You know, he has a slight overbite. I think he.
1: Oh, I I love Sylvester McCoy, and I think he has a great sense of lots going on under the surface. A similar thing that I also enjoy in Peter Davison, where he can seem to be quite detached or disaffected on a superficial level sort of behind the eyes is working 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 and that there's more going on beneath the surface
0: yes i mean in contrast uh, not disparaging any doctors at this point i don't think i've seen enough any of them but in contrast perhaps to colin baker who those two doctors sandwiched between and I think in many ways is the doctor playing the doctor at peak as you as you say I, I just think there's just a lot of subtle but very powerful uh, and emotional acting going on here from uh, Sylvester McCoy I really really like him this is I'll be honest the first of the doctors we've watched so far where genuinely I'm really excited for us to watch another one of his stuff I mean not that I've not enjoyed any of the stuff we've seen so far but I came to the end of this going I want more I want more of him it is very unique I think
1: almost, um, not not quite the same radical degree as the exile to Earth and stuff, but this era is changing the format in the way that the poetry transition changed the format. And in what one of the, I think, the, the most notable ways is that you now have a Doctor who turns up in places knowing where he is and knowing why he is there. So at the start of this story... The Doctor has gone to Terra Alpha for a purpose. He's, he's not turning up somewhere, stumbling into something, or landing where he didn't expect. This is a Doctor who is now on missions...
0: And it's funny because this is three episodes, but it, you could make this a four episode series. If the first episode was just the Doctor finding out what's going on, but he doesn't bother about it. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, like I could see you could stretch it out, but actually doesn't need it. And actually, it's really great, as you say, that he comes, and that means immediately he's landing and thinking and meeting people and making connections. And this is happening all the time. And he kind of sends Ace off, or Ace is sent off, but that's all really part of of him. I don't want to say using people, but like he he understands what everyone's role is going to be well
1: indeed though as, as as his era goes on it will transition more and more into him using people and that will be that will be explicitly called out and played as a very dark thing and particularly his relationship with ace he starts to treat the people around him as tools.
0: Right. Uh, and there is there is a little of this here that that's kind of the purpose of each of these people. And he's using the strength and the weakness of the people. He meets the nice people and the nasty people in order to achieve what is ultimately a laudable goal. The
1: Doctor has always had like a willingness to speak truth to power. But the McCoy doctor in particular, he uses that willingness and he he uses the impact of just not backing down. Yeah, you see it when he takes out the sniper by just standing in front of the gun and not being afraid of the gun and getting into the guy's head about what the gun means.
0: Yeah, I mean it, that this is just a striking moment. It's not that he does Venusian kung fu or uses the sonic screwdriver to blast it out of hand or anything like that. He just stands there and goes. You're not going to shoot me, and the guy doesn't shoot him, and he drops his gun. And similarly, later
1: on, he gets into Helena's office, just walks into Helena's office, talks to her, and walks out again. And he he sort of he's able to do this simply because no nobody would ever expect someone to just show that complete disregard for the hierarchy, and he wields. He wields his disregard for the hierarchy as a tool. Nobody is prepared for somebody to be that flagrant and therefore he is able to do it.
0: This also works in real life, uh, but like don't do this in real life because it's often a big move. Uh, but like if you just do things in subversion of societal expectation, it really does take people a while to just sort of Work out what you've done. So when he walks into the office, that's actually when he works out that the person's being executed and gets the water off the wall. And exactly as Flick says, it's just that he's just basically like, yeah, there are some societal rules and rules and boundaries here, but I don't need to worry about them. And And no one can quite think as fast as he is about just driving straight through. I'm reminded a bit of this concept of OODA loops.
1: Yes. And like neuro-linguistic pro- pro-
0: neurolinguistic And, and neuro-linguistic pro- programming. Yeah, I think NLP is a little more bollocks. OODA loops are probably kind of real. Some of it might be pseudoscience. But basically the idea is, A basic level if you can start if you can make decisions and act and reorient and make a different decision and act faster than people have a chance to go around that cycle themselves you can pretty much just do whatever because they just don't have time to react before you've already done the next thing
1: it's like everyone arrayed against him is going wait stop after he's already left and it's too late to stop him he's already done it and he's elsewhere
0: it feels a little bit like it's funny you mentioned neural linguistic programming because famously this is one of the things that Devin Brown claims to use. Yes. I mean, he uses a variety of stuff in his tricks. I think I think NLP he sort of uses for its, for its flavour. I'm uh, not really not clear really if NLP is real, but like I think there is something of the Devon Brown about this. Well, a lot of magic and a lot of the, a lot of the magician actually about this.
1: And of course he does perform a magic trick at the end of the story. He he pulls a coin out of thin air when he's um, talking about emotions to Hell and A.
0: Yes, indeed. And I had forgotten that happened, but it works exactly perfectly. So if I had to characterise this Doctor so far, he is a magician, not just in the sense he does magic, but in the um, sort of supernatural sense.
1: Which is quite funny. He will be very much directly equated with the title of magician in the mythology, uh, in the New Adventures era and sort of the tail end of the TV era, that the Doctor is a great magician. That that is that is literally something that is associated with the Seventh Doctor. There is an allusion in Battlefield, which is the first episode of season twenty-six, that the Doctor is Merlin.
0: Right, and actually there, there is, and then the other thing about Merlin, of course, is that part of actually Merlin's main power is that he his memory works backwards exactly. so that he can predict her, and there's almost something of like that with this doctor. That the doctor kind of knows what's going to happen, and that that's really most of a lot of Merlin's magic is just that he knows what's going to happen and so he can react to it before it does. Also a lot of magic is just doing something. There's a trick that Darren Brown described in one of his books where he messes up a trick that she's meant to get a coin under a glass. And he's kind of missed a slight. But no one's noticed. And so he just picks up the glass, puts the coin in and puts it back. And he does it so quickly. And people aren't really focusing on him because what magician would just pick up the glass, put the coin in and put it back? But people are like, how did you do that? And you can't really do that again because it's kind of a fluke. But when a magician does that, when they just act kind of, not even faster than you can watch, but just in a way that you're not really watching because you don't expect them to do that thing, they can do a lot of magic. And that's exactly what the doctor is doing here.
1: I think that this is an experience that will be familiar to anyone, that sometimes there are times, especially if you're in quite a crowded room or something, where, you know, you're, you're right in the middle of the room, but you just become aware that you're in like a bubble where nobody will perceive anything you do.
0: Something I feel like happens sometimes in the new series, I feel like the Tenth Doctor does this a lot, at least once, is the fact that no one really notices servants and waiters. Mm. Um, who is a good and it's a good example of people who have a certain kind of disability, but also yeah, some if if you're in a crowd, it's easy to feel like everyone's looking at you. But often, if you're in a crowd, nobody is looking at you.
1: It's interesting to contrast with Matt Smith, whose Doctor was very much the epitome of "Look at me, I'm here, eyes on me," whereas the Seventh Doctor is very much, yes, look over there. I'm going to be over here.
0: Yes, um, the doctor who most famous, I think, recently has been compared to a magician. is was actually the twelfth doctor. Yeah, that that was
1: more of a visual comparison.
0: Absolutely, and I I don't know that the seventh doctor. Visually looks like a magician. I'm just finding it kind of amazing that we'd come to these sorts independently, and then you're telling me that essentially that is that sort of becomes his mythological thing. Because I think what it says is that these themes are there. The 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 writers are thinking about the themes that they are trying to portray in a sufficiently consistent way that people who then write more stuff can pick up on it and extend it forward. And that's really it. it Shows that I think this is genuinely really really good Doctor Who. Right, and
1: this is thing is this is this is a really thematic, metatextual, multi-layered story. This is a polarizing story. It's neither loved nor hated, but very much both camps and not much of the middle ground. Do you mean
0: both? It's both loved and hated, but not much of the middle ground.
1: Yes. There's no sort of take it or leave it here. People either really like this kind of Doctor Who or really don't. The people who don't tend to see it as childish, but this is some of the most... I'm not saying that it's radically deep or that it necessarily all even works, but this is Doctor Who with more intentional layers and coding than, than it's had almost ever.
0: Indeed, bits of it feel like Doctor Who jazz, and by that I mean that it feels like there's kind of almost impressionistic themes and stuff being thrown out, and maybe not all of it works and there's harmony all at once, but it just keeps pulling you along. There's a
1: seventh Doctor audio drama where he literally describes his methodology as he's going to play jazz.
0: Right, exactly. And the, and the improvisational thing as well, this sense of, as a really good improvisational magician will do, he's just sort of playing the notes and finding out where they go and jamming and da 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 It's great.
1: And this works for this story better than I think any other Doctor would because all of these kind of character traits, sort of, what they're orbiting around is somebody very empathetic and very emotionally aware, somebody who knows how people think and knows what people's blind spots are, even though, in another way, he often seems to be very ignorant of how people are feeling. He's a a great manipulator, and to be a great manipulator, you need a kind of emotional intelligence. And I don't think any other doctor would work as well in this story... He's the only Doctor who really would celebrate the freedom to be unhappy.
0: And that's such a subtle thing as well. You know, I just had a thought as you were saying that. I think this is the first Doctor I have ever watched where I I would like to be their companion.
1: It'll be interesting to revisit that comment when you've watched some of season 26 and you see what he does to Ace.
0: Yes, indeed. But, you know, part of the thrill of hanging out with someone who's, Got that slightly dangerous character to them is knowing bad things will happen.
1: Notably, um there was a William Hartnell story that didn't get made called The Jokers, which was the same kind of setup, but the other way around. The more obvious thing of oh a society where happiness and laughter is outlawed. And it's so much more interesting to turn that on its head with this doctor and do the thing where what is ostensibly the bad emotions are the ones that are outlawed. It's much more interesting that what has been taken away is your right to negative things anyway.
0: And I I really want to segue from that, if we could, into some of the political themes, because actually I think it segues really nicely.
1: Yeah, right. So compare this to the mutants, because they're both clearly very political, who? And yeah, in s- so different in many ways.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is 1988, right? So we are about eight, nine years into the Thatcher government. This is really, I think, when Thatcher seems essentially invincible. I think Kinnock has lost the election quite recently uh, in the last couple of years. Um, it doesn't seem like the Tory government will ever end. But it's more than that. It's not just the government is oppressive. There's this real sense that those who choose to participate in the happy society, read neoliberal Thatcherite Britain, um, are get get to be happy. But people who want to acknowledge the sadness of what's happening, they're the enemy. And And not only are they to be oppressed? They should be pushed out because everyone needs to be completely bought into this uniform idea of a bright, technicaler, 80s, shoulder-padded, capitalist, and not that it's overtly capitalist, because it's not, actually it's actually more about those cultural aspects of Thatcherism and the feeling that if you're not buying into it, if you're against it, if you're different, if you're strange, if you're against the overarching societal hegemony, then you are wrong and you need to be Destroyed. I
1: was watching this, and I was thinking, I'm not convinced that this is actually about Thatcherism. It's about protest and the fragility of power, and a sort of it, it's about. it's it's, it's an in, well, as we'll mention like, It's an incitement. It's about how it's a re- it's revolutionary. Who? Because again, like they they really thought that this would encourage people towards political direct action. This was meant to be political, not just in what it was saying, but in what it was doing. But the writer, Graham Curry, he said he didn't set out to write a satire on Thatcherism, and I can believe that.
0: Yeah, Helen A is kind of a parody of Thatcher, but actually that's not what it's about.
1: Yeah, this isn't the society you would write if you were parodying Thatcherism.
0: Well, yeah, yes... But I, I, but I think it, it is, it is written in the context of living under the Thatcher government, which is sort of different. I, I agree, it's not parodying Thatcherism per se.
1: Right, uh, and it should also be mentioned, like, what once you get into the casting, the performances, and the direction, at that point, then it very much consciously was parodying Thatcher. I mean, I mean the the. J- Joseph, is it Joseph C?
0: Yeah, her husband. It is
1: so clearly Dennis Thatcher.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, he definitely is. But and and I, this I think is I sort of alluded to this a little before. And I'm genuinely saying this. I'm not. This isn't like a reach or a read. This feels like a queer story. You're not the first person to suggest that. Yeah, because, and especially in the context of like the AIDS crisis, like all of this you, you, is all going on under the surface, right? And this is a thing in which you have to be opt into the kind of heteronormative society and like act normal. And it, the Candyman and Gilbert M are kind of coded in a slightly effete a way. It ends with. Margaret Thatcher Analogue's husband running off with another man. All the men are kind of dressed in like slightly pink fey outfits. And it's like, I cannot believe this was accidental. I cannot believe though they weren't kind of going for this.
1: So I want to find the um, discontinuity guide commentary on this story. Oh, here we go. The story deals with Thatcher. Helen A gets lines like, I like your initiative, your enterprise, and families are very important for people's happiness. And gay pride. There's entrapment over cottaging, the TARDIS is painted pink, and the victim of the fondant surprise is every inch the proud gay man wearing, as he does, a pink triangle.
0: But apparently they didn't notice... OK, I, I, I could absolutely believe that many people working on this story had no idea. I cannot believe... I simply cannot believe that nobody involved in this story was... Yeah, you know, it just. I, I'm sure they. I'm sure they knew. Do you know? And but I don't do think the BBC
1: d- knew because. Let, oh no, I don't like, think the BBC <laughs> knew.
0: <laughs> Let's remember,
1: the BBC didn't realise that Julian and Sandy from Round the Horn were gay.
0: The ones who used Polari. Polari. Right. Yes. Um. It's just. I, I. I'm getting slightly emotional here, but like you know, and obviously I'm someone who grew up. You know, I was born in the 90s. I I grew up kind of the. But I I, I kind of. I know enough of a little of what kind of the history was like at the time to feel like there's just some kind of connection I I, I think it's fascinating.
1: So, in fact, drawing together the politics and the metatextual aspect of the story, that opening scene is almost a wartime or Cold War propaganda poster about being aware of spies brought to life.
0: It really is,
1: isn't it? And then it's very reminiscent in places, particularly the... Um, the conversation surrounding the waiting zone and a few of the other areas very reminiscent of the prisoner you've got Orwell as we've said or like dripping in Orwell
0: but there's also things like the prisoner there as well is what you're saying
1: there's lots of layers of intentional and unintentional reference but some of it definitely deliberate intentional reference Mm -hmm. and you have you know this satirical content and some of it quite a lot of it was brought in, not in the writing, but in the directing and the acting. Right. And maybe that feeds into this thing that it does perhaps have a slightly scattershot approach to its targets. There was at points where I started to think of Kablam, in that it's saying, it's kind of throwing out points that aren't necessarily all focused on one target.
0: Right, but I, I was reliably informed, Flick, that it's only in the modern era that uh, Doctor Who had ever been incredibly political, but not quite sure of what his targets are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that this is much more than focused than
1: Kablam. But yes, there that's is not a hard. sort of, like, for example, the bit about the displaced natives doesn't really—it's—it's it's a sort of a
0: strange afterthought. Yes, indeed, because it's—it's it's kind of the thing that, as we've discussed before, Doctor Who has done. But actually, it's not made much of a deal of here. And indeed, not clear what happens because Terror Alpha is still there. They still live on top of where the pipe people, yeah. or the wences lived or whatever. So that, that is almost not really properly resolved that presumably their pipes will no longer be full of candy. Yeah, it's, it's, it doesn't
1: quite hang, does it? It's not a story that is off target. It clearly is hitting a target. It clearly works very well when it's talking about the fragility of the power of a regime but the thing is that it then throws out a lot of other stuff that just kind of goes all over
0: yeah i tell you what phrase has just come to mind which is clear about which is false consciousness yeah that's kind of the what what's what it's really aiming at here is is the false consciousness which helena is consciously trying to create and and what happens over the course of the story is that the false consciousness that she's tried to build breaks apart and everyone realizes they don't if they all collectively want this to end, they can make it end. And that is fundamentally, as we said, it's a revolutionary message. Yes. Um, is is a Doctor Who story involving um, a giant man made of candy the right vehicle for that? Well, I mean, there wasn't a revolution against the Thatcher government, so maybe not. But
1: a uh, sort of joke that it's it's you know a story that they intended to bring down the Thatcher government, but actually they just got cancelled.
0: Right. Exactly.
1: I like actually just the end of that with the essay from the discontinuity guide I think is worth reading as well still more than anything else this is our doctor who that which is appropriate to our age and generation it goes beyond camp into protest it's not sad it's angry
0: yeah and it is angry it's but it's not, it's not angry in a a sort of stereotypical kind of way it's 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 a real anger you know it's easy to make angry protesters appear on drama. People do it all the time and they don't make them sympathetic.
1: And and indeed, um, one of the criticisms of Ace is that she frequently has a kind of pantomime anger in other stories. Um, right. Ace's anger is very over-the-top and performative and false and doesn't ring true.
0: Well, shall we talk a little about Ace? Yeah, so... So I feel like we don't see loads of her
1: in this episode. Which is... sort of a shame because this episode is using ace really well in that it's not overplaying her emotions which is where she really falls down for my money and it keeps her upset most of the time because when she's smug and happy she tends to be unbearable in my opinion
0: so i i just really I, i really like her I think she has a sort of... uh, I like her character design. They've clearly thought about the costume. I mean, you could argue it's over-egged, but, you know, like... I mean,
1: the the, the badges actually play into the story here, briefly. But this is... Ace is... There's maybe no other companion who has penetrated as deeply into fandom as Ace. And partially that's because of her being the companion during cancellation, but even before the cancellation ace hit a nerve she was very different to what a doctor who companion had ever been before and the stories not this one but the stories would start to be as much about ace as they were about the doctor
0: which of course in modern who i i feel like ace would fit quite well. well
1: so ace is often like sort of said to be the the prototype for the modern doctor who companion
0: yeah i know and i can absolutely see that i can really understand it yeah i I wish i'd see more of her actually i i have
1: quite a lot of problems with her but they're not visible in this story i don't think it makes that much sense to talk about them right now
0: yeah no i I don't think we do but i think she works quite well here I, i quite liked her and and her sort of protest aesthetic works very well for the story
1: Yes, this story, even though she's not in it a huge amount, plays up the bits of her that I think work.
0: The killjoys,
1: depressives, manic, reactive, endogenous, we got them. All of them. What do you mean, got them? They disappeared. You make me sick. I did a good job. And then they put me on this. It's not fair. I know the streets. I'm a fighter.
0: You're a killer. Do we want to talk a little about the Candyman? Just because I mm. feel like he is a controversial aspect of this episode.
1: I mean, we we definitely we definitely should talk about the Candyman, and he is, I think, another one of these things that isn't obviously on the same target as everything else.
0: Yeah, he's just quite odd. If you just had Gilbert M, like. There is no need, really, in the script for him to be a giant robot made of candy. Indeed,
1: he isn't, in the script, a giant robot made of sweets. What is he in the script? In the script, he is a, a doughy man covered in powdered sugar. He is basically just Gilbert M. Oh, and that's how they stick him to the floor? I guess that was a re I not don't, I don't know how much was rewritten later, but he was conceived as, I think, still a, a cyborg or a, a robot, but he was just a man made of powdered sugar.
0: Right, which I guess it makes sense that you'd stick into the floor, but, but the, the particular, the very characteristic character design that is legally distinct from Bertie Bassett, that...
1: So the BBC did agree after Bassett complained that they would never use the character again, but they conducted an internal investigation, which they say turned up that no infringement had occurred.
0: Right, uh, but, but I think it, it inadvertently, perhaps just because that's what licorice all sorts look like,
1: Yes, I mean, why is he a licorice all sorts? It, it, it is a hell of a coincidence if it's a coincidence.
0: I, I wonder if what happened was that you could imagine a series of things happening where someone says, maybe he should be made of sweets. Mm, I don't know what sweets. Uh, someone else says, oh, licorice all sorts. That gets hmm, written hmm, down. Hmm. It gets handed to someone. Like, like, I, I, I do not believe that at some point in this process, someone wasn't thinking of the can, of, of right, Bertie of, Bassett. Because of but, course. But 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 they don't need to have been consciously saying the words. Let them make it look like Bertie Bassett. For because once you give the instruction to someone to build a a character design for someone who look who's made of licorice all sorts, not to relitig not to relitigate the BBC's internal investigation. But he's not made of the same exact licorice all sorts. He really well, he's, a, all- he's
1: not just made of licorice all sorts. He's also got humbugs and other things in there. Sticks right, of rock.
0: He actually looks quite
1: bad when he's. Just sort of, if you just look at him in a picture, he looks a bit meh. But when he like the movement and in particular the voice, it's, oh, the it's voice. very much the performance that brings him to life.
0: Yeah, like, like I have seen clips of the Candyman, and then clips don't really do it justice. And, I've certainly Stilden and I suddenly seen still them and said, and I I previously thought that looks like a joke somehow, and I do not understand how because I did not think it would be possible when I watched it genuinely he is quite frightening he he really is there is a part where he um
1: he goes to choke the doctor and he's he sort of he he's got a real sadistic glee and he comments on sort of his own power to kill and he he's very threatening
0: and then he's consumed by these rages right exactly he he is a he's not an emotionless terrifying monster like i feel like sometimes in in, mo- in modern who you had a monster that looked like this i'm not quite clear it would it would be homicidal but it wouldn't have emotions but he gets into he gets petulant it's like when you're in the room with someone who is who gets into rages and you're not quite sure how they react there's that real oh and he looks like a, and he's also made of sweets and he has a <laughs> horrible grating Awful voice. I I, I I imagine. I assume there are children who were six or seven or something like that when they watched this who were traumatized. I can really imagine
1: it really upsetting you, yeah. And the thing is I you know how I said that the malice terrified me as a kid when we talked about the awakening. Yeah, absolutely. And that I saw it in person and it was even more frightening. Right. I've seen the Candyman in person. It looks pathetic
0: but i bet that a the proper falling apart a lot and b as we said actually so much of it is the voice and the emotion
1: both of those things really bring it to life in the novelization of the happiness patrol he is again this sort of man made of powdered sugar who is slimy and sinister and it's a very different take that you like wouldn't actually fit into the t v realization of the story as well, no indeed, I mean, I think he works really well I mean with a no no pun intended, Helen A has a saccharine sensibility, yes, and a giant candy colored pink and blue and yellow man. Works in that context. It does. Um, I like that his lair is called the Candy Kitchen. I actually is it. But incidentally, I love Gilbert M. I think Gilbert M. might be my favourite character. He's just really nice. No, he's not. He, nice. I, I actually, I just actually I love all of the characters in this. Um, Earl is fantastic. Gilbert M. and the Candyman is like a Robert Holmes style double act, which won't mean <gasps> anything to you. I realise, but I think the Candyman and maybe the the costume looking a bit naff but working so well when it's in action kind of speaks to this story like this is a story that is really going for something brilliant and the blemishes don't even live on in your memory after it's gone because whatever blemishes they are fall away in the fact that what they are attempting to realize is something really clever and just huge imagination yeah
0: like, if you're watching this, if you're hearing us be as more effusive about this by far than we were about Genesis of the Daleks. Um, so I think I've now concluded on this, that so I, I enjoyed both Timelash and the Happiness Patrol more than Genesis of the Daleks. That That's a trailer clip, if ever there was one. Indeed. Um... Uh, but you, when you watch this, you, there will be bits where you think, oh, this is a bit slow, oh, I'm not sure that quite worked. And those bits will happen. I, I did have them. But you'll notice so the sort of afterwards, I really am, just, I really am genuinely, this isn't Paul. I really am just frothing about it. I really enjoyed this Doctor Who. I, I can't really put it any better than that. There are two schools of thought, and that is one school of thought. There is another
1: school who really see this as naff and childish. And I just feel like that's a, a failure to
0: engage with imagination. Yeah, I think so. And I think imagination is a good thing here, right? Like Doctor Who But that that
1: mindset is clearly the one that was prevailing behind the scenes because that's why the show ended up cancelled.
0: Yeah. I think sometimes especially in the, the the latter half of the tens, uh, we've been very spoiled by Doctor Who that looks really amazing. Um and we forget now, I mean, even when you go back to look at, say, Chris and stuff from the beginning of the uh, the new series, oh, Rose looks really bad. But I think I think there's a real magic to a show when you buy into it and just kind of go with it. Yeah. And that is something I think I'm really getting into the groove with now with this old Doctor Who. It's just not really worrying too much about the fact that some of the costumes are a bit wobbly and odd because actually sometimes they just really click and as you say what works really well here is this story really has an imagination and a heart to it there's a real thing it's doing and if you come to this episode and go yes i'm gonna buy in then i think it's really good and actually i would say that there are often episodes which people decry in more modern doctor who which actually if you just buy into them they are a lot better than you think like you should watch this it's one, but if you're, if you're listening to this, okay, we've, we've kind of summarised the story. It, it's worth watching. It really is. It's got some real, uh, like, it's got
1: layers. It's got referentiality. It's got proper cleverness. It's got a motive, which is not always, not every Doctor Who story actually knows what he wants to do. But this story not only knows what he wants to do, it, it
0: has some very radical ideas about what he wants to do. I think better and and, and more knowledgeable people than me have uh, argued what what the definition of art exactly is. But this is, to me, feels like Doctor Who trying to be and achieving art. Yeah. In a way that doesn't always happen on the show. It's also got excellent music. An excellent use of music. Well, we were saying before, the fact that it's all very diegetic, um, the Mm. way that the blues keeps recurring. I mean, it was just really enjoyable. Which which also ties in nicely to the the TARDIS
1: being painted pink. And then at the end, after the doctors had a comment to Earl about the blues, the TARDIS is being painted blue. Blue.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it sounds really cheesy when you say it out loud, but literally when you watch (laughs) it, you're like, oh, yes. The only thing that I
1: actually really struggle with here is the fact that they didn't do anything at all to cover up just the floor of the studio, and it's really visible in a lot of shots, and that's the only thing that takes me out of the story. It's just going, that's just the studio floor.
0: Yeah, and th- I think the other thing for me is, it kind of works, but the set design is quite drab, and in some sense, you could do it. I suspect we would use more budget, which is why they didn't. You could really hyper-saturate
1: everything. Well, there, there is a story... And Sylvester McCoy says, and how true this is, I don't know, but Sylvester McCoy says that they originally planned to do the story in black and white. I mean, that is fascinating. And actually, in some sense, would work better because
0: that wouldn't matter so much. Of course, you'd lose the whole joke of painting the tad as pink. You would, although I think if I was doing it, I would sort of use little bits of colour in that very effective way that black and white stuff can do sometimes in the modern era. And And I like a story that understands the value of melancholy. And melancholy is a very hard emotion to do. But that's kind of what it
1: does. Yeah, there's a wonderful moment when the census guy hears Earl's harmonica. And he's like, oh, oh, I like that. Oh, it's, what is that? And the Doctor says, a joyful
0: melancholy. And he's like, yes, yes, that's what it is. Oh, I do like that. Oh, I just, I, you know... It's funny as well as we've been talking. Sometimes when we've been talking about an episode, we've sort of picked over it a lot. But I feel like as I discuss this episode, I'm liking it more. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny,
1: and it's there's there's actually there's really not a lot to it, and it doesn't need to be. It's not crowded. It just works.
0: Impolite guests get to feel the back of my candy hand. That may be a candy man, but the last time we met, you said you're going to kill me. Really, Doctor? Thank you for
1: reminding me. So, um, you know, we're talking about visually comparing it to the Christopher Eccleston season. But beyond that, I can't but think that this must be one of Russell T Davies' favourite Doctor Who stories. This has influence all over it. And uh, notably, that around this time, Russell T Davies was pitching the long game to Andrew Cartmel and getting script notes on it from Andrew Cartmel, and that makes perfect sense. Oh, absolutely. You can imagine the long game. The long game particularly, or uh, you know the bit in Gridlock where all of the drug dealers suddenly pop out of shacks selling essentially acid that gives you emotions? When RTD writes a satirical story, it is just, like, it has the happiness patrol all all over it. And of course...
0: uh, uh, Running through it like a stick of rock. Hey! <laughs> oh, you, uh, you, you've usurped my punning. I think. I mean, you, we we can
1: you know. Um, and and of course, in that first Christopher Eccleston series, RTD has somebody paint Bad Wolf on the TARDIS, and then it's being painted back over at the end of the episode.
0: Yeah just uh we like comparing old and new who on this thing but I, what i do want to say a bit about new who actually though is in light of this kind of discussion it's a sort of a plea um something i was doing a bit before we started this project was re-watching some what is now kind of something from my childhood a bit nostalgic which is rtd who for very reasons i just sort of started watching and, and kept going and then skipped the. Bad one, uh, yeah. I, 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 I skipped Daleks in Manhattan. Well, I write Daleks in Manhattan. Well, we can have that discussion another time, but uh, um, Daleks in Manhattan's great. Well, actually, Daleks in Manhattan might be a good example of one I should just go back to and reevaluate because what I'm saying Daleks is Manhattan's actually... fantastic, and everybody is wrong. Okay, fine, we're not, we're not gonna have this argument. They, However... they have the, the conversation <laughs> oh, <God>. between
1: Dalek <laughs> Thay and Diagoras at the top of the Empire State Building, where Thay is like you are so much weaker and more pathetic than us, and yet you keep persevering and rebuilding and you built all this. How? It doesn't make sense.
0: Okay, so actually the point I was trying to make, and I feel like I've just fallen right into the trap that I'm warning people against, is actually if you listen to this, you might just be a hardcore Doctor Who fan and watch all the Doctor Who, but I'm hoping some of the people listening to this might be some people who who know a lot about new Who, um, but are kind of using this as a way to explore old Who for the first time. Maybe like me. Or or indeed have in fact watched the McCoy era in the past and
1: come to it with preconceptions and not really paid attention to what they were watching. Because I've got to say, I remember the Happiness Patrol being good, but I didn't remember it being this good. And I was expecting far more shoddiness around the edges than there was.
0: Indeed. But what I was going to say is that if you're someone like that, who for whom maybe you're kind of my age and RTD who is... You remember it being kind of shoddy, but kind of quite good... Um, go back. You should watch Happiness Patrol first of all, because it's really good. Uh, but also maybe go back and revisit some episodes you think you remember being kind of crap and having crap monsters, and go to them with an open heart and with imagination, and really try to reflect on what they're trying to do. Because I think actually some of those episodes are really, really great. Like the one I'm wrong about, apparently Daleks in Manhattan. Daleks in Manhattan is great. There we go. Um, I mean, I I think
1: this is the spirit of Doctor Who, and I've said before the bits that don't work or might be a bit nath or the potential for occasionally something to come along that you think is just utterly awful is kind of in the DNA of Doctor Who as well. Yeah. And the like the dichotomy of an episode like this, which to different people is either art or trash, is ambitious and overreaching or well,
0: art can sometimes also be trash oh yeah yeah uh you know
1: is, is it overreaching or is it short-sighted or is it both like the the most doctor who episodes are these ones that like can be the heart of the show to one person and the nadir of the show to another much yes. more so than the ones that everyone's just kind of like yeah it was okay it was just a story and i think it just like, it's a cliche, but it just goes to
0: show it takes all sorts. You know, I I thought that might be a pun wind-up, but I, I wasn't quite sure where it was going. But you, you... Yeah, okay. So, next time, we are going to be uh, looking at the Mind Robber, I'm the second Doctor, Patrick Troughton. Um, I have been Renner. I have been Felicia. And this has been our relative digressions.
1: Relative Digressions is a 2020 production by Renna Robson and Felicia Barker. You can find us on Twitter at Who Digressions, on Facebook under Relative Digressions, or email us at relative.digressions at gmail.com. The music is Sonic 1.0 by Sonic, S O N N I K, with additional sound from Red Sky Lullaby and Luffy. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in the future. I really wish we could end it with... The Candyman song in from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory instead of the theme tune. Uh, yeah, I mean, we'd, we'd get can- copyright struck in, in half a second.
0: And what, what's the um? I've been Candyman singing it all
1: afternoon. Can- you, you 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 know it. The Candyman can, yes, the Candyman can.
0: The well, Candyman
1: so, candy is- because can, he's something it will ever makes the world taste good. That from from the Willy Wonka film.